I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray and this is part two of a podcast special marking When Saturday Comes magazine reaching its 400th issue. If you've never listened to our regular podcast, please give it a go and do consider joining the When Saturday Comes supporters club at patreon.com slash Comes. Anyway, that's quite enough from me. Time to hit play. First up, magazine editor Andy Lyons and then publisher Richard Guy on how When Saturday Comes has changed over the years. The next big development was that uh, there's a publishing company were based in Soho got involved. They did a financial magazine called The Mortgage Magazine and various business-related mags. And um, they tried to buy Viz when it's still just been done by the Donald Brothers, the founders, but just missed out on that. So they were interested in getting involved in another magazine. They didn't They didn't put any, a lot of money into WSC, but we started to use their offices to produce the issue from issue number five using computers. So issue number five actually is printed on the wrong paper. It's very glossy paper. The only time we, we had it printed on glossy paper. So the main person, that company, he was very supportive of us. He was called Tony Aggie, A-G-E-H. He later on to move, moved on to various other things. He worked at The Guardian and at the BBC. He set up the iPlayer at the BBC and ended up getting a, an OBE, actually. So when he left the mortgage market, he left the following year. He got his own small office for a bit, which we then shared with him. Then we got our own place. And then Mike moved to Australia in 1988. By this point, there were two other people involved, John Duncan and Bill Bruce, who were both about to leave college. I had a full-time job, my only proper office job at Westminster City Council and 17th floor of an office block where I used to write articles surreptitiously where I was supposed to be working. And the three of us went on to this scheme called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which is a government plan to basically massage the dole figures so you could get money, something like dole money, for starting or running a business. And that lasted a year. And by the end of that time, the mag was making enough money, more or less, to pay wages. And the fourth person, Doug Cheeseman, got involved, and he eventually became the art editor, which he did for around 25 years. Then we moved offices a couple of times. We were based relatively close to the central London, which was handy for us at the time, because that's where photo agencies were and typesetting bureaus and stuff like that. We gradually started to take advertising, which we put off for a bit, um, but that did become important for us in terms of revenue. Then in the mid-90s, there was ex- this explosion in, in football magazines. 4 for 2 started to quickly fall up under the three magazines, and we decided to go 
full colour having been black and white um, for, for most of most of the time up to that point. The 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 processes of getting the magazine from Andy's head to the shelves huh, um, has has gone from process that was that was literally called paste up, where you would type something out and stick it on a bit of card, and then it would go through various production processes uh, to get to the printers uh, and then to the shelves where now it's obviously all done digitally so it, it can happen it happens a lot quicker um, there's a lot more flexibility in how you do it we always have of course sort of hovered either side of the of, of, of the break-even line some 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 years we we hop on the good side of it other years we hop on the bad side of it we, we have fewer members of staff now because uh, processes are faster because of the technology. Um, equally, there's, there's, there's back, back in the day, sort of the 80s, 90s, we, we were just doing the magazine in a bit of mail order. Since then, media's moved on, so we have um, a requirement really to, 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 to run the website, social media things, a lot of jobs that weren't required uh, 20 years ago. Last year, we, we, we sh- we, uh, the lease was up on our office. Um, so we decided to we decided to shut to shut it and um, work remotely, partly for cost savings, partly because people wanted to do ver- various different things. Um, so we gave that a go, and, and it worked pretty well. You know, the technology is there, so so we we kind of got ourselves lockdown ready about a year before everyone else did. So uh, sort of much better preparation than the British government, that's for sure. So it, it kind of followed uh, the, 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 the sort of technological changes in media, really. But fundamentally, um, in terms of structure, it's broadly owned by the same people that it was when it started. And it's always been owned by people that work or have worked there. There have been approaches for when Saturday comes, some less convincing than others, as Andy continues. The first time was around 1990. We met up with someone who worked for a businessman whose first name was Caruso, I think. He published various magazines, and I think he was also in the music business, and his representative said, if we come to some sort of deal, we'd keep our jobs and we'd get a company car reach. And I remember we all just sort of burst out laughing, really. That just seemed so absurd. And in the wake of the explosion of new football magazines in the mid-90s, we were approached by IPC, who were then publishers of Shoot and World Soccer, and had been told to come up with a response to 442, which had started a few months before, to see if we'd be interested in moving WC over to IBC and becoming a more mainstream magazine. But we thought, well, we're probably not the best people to do that sort of magazine. And in any case, we'd lose our core subscribers if we became a, a, a glossy title. So eventually there were these four magazines. Um, they launched their own magazine called Goal, and there were another two as well as 442. But they couldn't all survive as they were too similar. And that, how I used to liken it to is that there were four big dinosaurs that were thumping each other. They weren't going to notice the smaller, more evolved creature that was running around at their feet, and that was us. Next, Richard Guy on some of the problems faced in running when Saturday comes over the years, and then Andy again on various complaints and protests received by the magazine. You know, we, we model through in our in in our own way, um, but you know, there's been a few bumps in the road over the years. In 2010, our distributors went out of business pretty much overnight. Now their job is to get the magazine basically from the printers to the shelves, uh, working it down the, the wholesale chain and to retailers and collecting the money. And so at any time, any one time, they're, they're holding sort of maybe a couple of issues worth of our money. Um, so we were in, this was, so this was in 2010, and we weren't in a, a, a terrible position at the time, which is a good job because that very nearly did for us. 
but we used what what reserves we had uh, muddled through. So, so that wasn't very that wasn't great. Back in about 1997, I think it was, we had an office in, in Farringdon in in London, and one day Islington Council came knocking on the door saying, uh, "You've not paid any business rates for six years." You owe us, crikey, £35,000, £36,000. I hasten to add this was before my time that the lease was signed, so it wasn't my fault. However, we thought, how are we going to deal with that? Because obviously, um, we never have a huge amount of reserves. So uh, we we were very generously helped out by Time Out magazine, who had had a distribution company at the time, and they took on our distribution, paid off Islington Council and let us pay them back over a much longer period of time. Then there's, there's been just a couple of other bits and pieces over the years where people have owed us money and, and they've just they've just sort of disappeared. One of our ad sales companies went out of business. So there's always a few bits and pieces over the years where we just think we're doing okay, then someone pulls some sort of rug from somewhere and we have to bounce back up again. But we do that. The first one I can remember, we got a letter from the management committee of a non-league league, which I, dare I say was the Hellenic League, over something one of our writers had said. But I remember it was phrased in such a way that the lawyer clearly thought it was ridiculous. I can't remember how he phrased it, but he, it was like he was sort of saying behind his hand, look, these, these guys have asked me to write this letter, but between, you know, it's just a waste of time. So that was the first one I can recall. There was a, a club chairman, I won't say who who it is, um, who phoned up to complain about an article, but he was on his car phone. He kept going out of range for that. Like, 10 seconds at a time and coming back again so he's going under a bridge or something so only we had not much idea of what it was he'd said except that at the end he said i'm just trying to get a debate going that's all so we thought oh yeah thanks for your thoughts kind of thing we were pretty unclear as to what exactly they were and once um a chairman phoned us up when we we're finishing an issue the magazine to say he's going to sue us now i didn't want to disturb any of us as we were working so i just I said very little to him and then it turned out we'd published some about eight years about eight years previously which had just gone up on our website which were where we started to put up old articles on the website that mentioned something about acquisitions of shares in the club. He apparently thought it was a new article. It was a bit of a grey area whether online publishing counts as new publishing. But then 10 minutes later, he phoned back in a very conciliatory tone. Evidently, somebody had advised him this was an old article. In the meantime, I'd phoned up the journalist who'd written the original piece and worked for a local paper. And he said, oh, yeah, he's always phoning us up and then ringing back and backing down. Um, there was an Arsenal fan who sent back one of our pre-season posters ripped into small pieces after we'd done a, a Tony Adams donkey joke when it, those things are quite new. He sent it back in quite a small envelope so he'd obviously carefully tipped all the torn bits in so we, we thought we could have sellotaped it all together and sent it back to him again but we didn't want, to, didn't want the thing to escalate. And there's a Rotherham fan I remember I remember this phrase specifically accused us of an obvious anti-Miller's agenda once. And um, we've had a few Man United, Man City and Chelsea fans who've, who've said something similar. Not about Rotherham, obviously about their own clubs. Um, in the office block we used to, um, we were based in, we were up on the fourth floor of a block and w- with a lift. And um, there was a metal panel where on the, the buttons where the, the, the buttons for each floor were. And someone, we assumed it was a bike career, were often quite grumpy, had scratched with a key, we think, WC twats. And next to this next to this metal panel. And someone from one of the offices came up and asked us if we'd done it, like it was our gang sign or something. So we'd see it every day. So that that certainly helped to keep your feet on the ground. And once when we got back a new issue back from the printers, we used to get a box of a, a few boxes of issues delivered to our offices. I noticed someone had written piss off in Biro across the center pages. Not I should say our current printers, this was a long time ago. 
we, we it's only in one copy and nobody else got in touch with us about it so we were kind of relieved but for a while afterwards i quite nervously open each issue make sure no one had, had done that again We've heard then from editor Andy and publisher Rich, but what about the other staff who bring the modern magazine to print? Tom Hocking is deputy editor. His time with When Saturday Comes began with a fortnight of work experience. I spent, I think, probably the first hour chatting to my colleague Rich, who's who's the publisher, about Aston Villa versus Sheffield Wednesday in 1992 when Ron Atkinson returned to Hillsborough with Villa and David Hurst scored a stunning goal. And I'd, I'd only, you know, I'd... I don't remember the game. I'm not sure I I was actually there because I was only five years old. <laughs> but I'd, obviously I've seen it on YouTube and I just felt very settled in in that environment. It was it was a small office. It was there's a, a team of four permanent staff, um, boxes of T-shirts and sort of piles of books all over the place. It just as much as the technology has moved on and yes, we make magazines on on Macs these days rather than hand printing, it, there was something that still felt very DIY about it and very personal. So wh- while I was there on my two weeks work experience doing various things, I wrote a couple of pieces for the website, um, did lots of um, going through newspapers, looking for clippings, um, did lots of archiving of old issues, things like that. I, I picked up that um, Ed Upright, who was the news editor at the time, was leaving to go to New York. And Ed had been there for, I think, maybe seven years, something like that. Um, and he, much like me, had started as a publishing assistant, um, was now news editor. Um, and I picked up he was leaving. And obviously, I, I suspected that meant Paul, who was the Paul Campbell, who was the publishing assistant at the time, would move up to news editor. And I thought, oh, there might be a job coming up here in a few months so I I sort of I I kept an eye out um I saw the job go up for publishing assistant I applied and I spent most of the interview I think we spent a lot of it talking about cricket actually that that's what WSC feels like it really it feels very personal and like everything's just a bit of a a casual conversation and then I, I thankfully got the job and I had to move down from Sheffield to London and I was publishing assistant at a magazine that I loved and it was really exciting. Outside of office duties, Tom's earliest assignment was a glamorous one. But after I joined, the first thing I was trusted to do was go to the um, 2012 Toy Fair. um, I think it was Earl's Court, Um, which doesn't sound like a normal assignment for a publishing assistant at a sort of alternative football magazine. Um, But I went because they were relaunching Sabutio. They were relaunching figures um, that supposedly if you stood on them, they wouldn't break, which I I still doubt is the case. (laughs) Don't see how that's possible. So we were told that John Barnes would be there and we thought, you know, our readers will probably quite like Sabutio still. you know, it's, it's a nostalgia thing. Um, so I went along and there is the, you know, these aisles of like Ben 10 toys and Pokemon cards and all of this stuff. And and there was just John Barnes under a under a little marquee with a Sabutio table. And instead of John Barnes, I accidentally ended up talking to England's representative for Sabutio. Well, it's not Sabutio. It's called, I think it's called table football. And it was really interesting. You know, he was talking about all the tactics and how you line up. And it's very much a an attack heavy formation is is the way I think it's yeah it's a three seven formation is favored in professional Sabutio if you didn't know that I, I I might get some we might get some letters off the back of this saying I'm wrong on that but maybe tactics have evolved maybe 
there's more of a Gagan press these days. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so it was it was just one of those things where I thought, oh, this is real journalism. This is what this is what the real journalists do. They go out to these events and and they sniff out a story. But I I forgot to talk to John Barnes and ended up talking to this guy instead. And I, I ended up an okay article. I think it it went in the magazine. Tom was promoted to news editor and then deputy editor. Here he is explaining some of what that role involved. Writing the headlines and the stand first, which are the introductions to the articles, um, making sure the text fits on the page, making sure there's no spelling mistakes, um, no grammatical errors, um, that we conform to WSC house style, which we do have, contrary to some people's opinions. We do we do have a style that's sort of been brought in over the many years, um, such as how we refer to Cup Winners Cup and the avoidance of sponsors wherever possible in league names, things like that. So that's sort of where it was. And I, I loved it. I, I almost enjoy that more than writing, to be honest with you. Um, I love seeing the articles. I love making the layouts fit together um, once the designers have worked with it. I love writing the headline and the intros because they're, they're the things that should, in theory, make people read the articles um, and you really have to do them justice. Um, and it's really varied, you know, you can, because of the nature of WSC, you can flip between writing uh, a stand first about the the emergence of orange footballs and where have they gone to something really serious about, you know, either corruption in FIFA or obviously something like the Hillsborough disaster and the inquiry that followed. And I just, I really like that challenge. And obviously the, the, the puns are, are quite fun as well. We particularly like getting, getting music references in there. There is, you know, the odd reference to the fall or something like that. Uh, it, it's always good to get, say, a half man, half biscuit song reference in a headline. Next, assistant editor Fionn Thomas on her role. My job, it's sort of a bit of everything, I think, which is quite fun. So I do the subscriptions and look after all our beloved subscribers and, and then stuff on the mag as well just reading research sub subbing articles um coming up with really bad puns for headlines is, is always fun the fun of it is that because it's a small team you just you do a bit of everything and you kind of you know what's happening with everything um so i've always enjoyed that sort of variety of it i think one one thing that was quite big for me was that all the previous jobs i'd had um were jobs uh in sort of not to do with football stuff like a lot of, I did a lot of university administration jobs and where where people were not really into football, colleagues. And if someone asked me, what did you get up to at the weekend? Uh, I, I wouldn't tell them what I'd been up to at the weekend because it would usually be something like I went on a day trip to Billingham Sinfonia versus Willington or something. But I wouldn't tell them that. I probably wouldn't even have said I've gone to football at all. So to be in a job where I could sort of talk and write and read and think about football all day was was quite a big thing and still is now andy lyons and tom hocking on bringing an issue of when saturday comes from planning to printing well we aim to have some topical articles in every issue but obviously can't plan an entire edition a long way ahead so basically i create a plan for the issue I used to do this on a big board with a page grid and marker pens and stuff and now I just do it on my computer and we have various regular and semi-regular series that we try to get pieces for ahead of time few historical articles which aren't time specific and just be dropped in whatever but you need the flexibility to cover something as it comes up so i remember things like when alex ferguson retired or when sep blatter stepped down as fifa president both those things happened 
on like a day or so before we finished an issue so we had to sort of be ready to do some, to cover those at fairly short notice and I remember the world cup bid when england were bidding for what became the you know, the russia world cup and um, we had arranged to send an issue to the printer a day later than usual because the decision was being made after we'd finished an issue so i remember writing two editorials one assuming that the bid had failed which of course it did spectacularly and one in case they won and then we were obviously able to to use the right one we're always always trying to avoid telling readers things they already know about things that have happened and going for this as a personal perspective so when uh, last year when Barry went under and Bolton looked like they're about to at the start of the season we had two pieces by fans putting both the situations in context longer term we had to hold off finishing the Bolton one until the very last minute because we weren't uh, clear what was happening and that, that the final week the final three days are always always very hectic because there's always a few outs like articles that haven't come in yet that that we're relying on and if not um things might need to be moved around and that's where sort of articles you've got in your back pocket um you know that, that we've been maybe saving from for a couple of months they come out because we, we've always got those it gets quite hectic in the last few hours you know um it's always interesting obviously every, every article is read by everyone in the office normally twice um i've normally seen it three or four times all the text by the by the time you're signing off for the final time and then still at the last minute you'll see something that you've read four or five times and that you somehow missed and still we we occasionally see stuff after it's been printed but before we've received the magazines so that's that's the worst case scenario because you know the mistake is coming so yeah it's 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 a brilliant process i love it it's very up and down you get because we're in a monthly magazine it's you know you get a week of really intense production work and then a couple of and then it it slightly dies down in terms of you're now thinking of issue ideas for the next issue sending out lots of emails and then in the final couple of weeks it really starts to ramp up again and and become serious and you start thinking oh god we've got to make a magazine in three days we need there's always that nervous feeling of flicking through the issue once it's arrived knowing that you can't change anything knowing that subscribers have already seen it the the nightmare scenario is a mistake on the cover which so far i'm pretty sure we've avoided unless anyone knows any different um but then there's stuff like oh god i hope we haven't spelled a contributor's name wrong or you know mentioned the wrong club or something like that so what of those regular features undoubtedly beloved of readers first up some words on match of the month Fionn Thomas on one of her favourites, then Taylor Parks and Cameron Carter, two frequent contributors to those pages, on their own Match of the Month memories. Obviously it's four pages, so it's quite a sort of centrepiece of the issue. And that kind of gives the writer um, the opportunity to kind of set the scene a bit more of, 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 the, of the game and the, um, the context, which is, which is more interesting than, than just sort of a, a match report where it's just about what's happened in the game. It's, it's it's all what's more interesting is what happens before the game and after the game and during the game around you. There was one in 2013 when Taylor Parks, who is obviously a, a brilliant writer, went to uh, Northampton versus Oxford, and it was a game in sort of end of March, I think it was, but it was played in a snowstorm, uh, which just sort of immediately you know it's going to be a good piece because it's, it's football in snow is always always the best thing, and it has got a great finish where. At the end of the game, he gets in a taxi outside the ground and there's a Russian taxi driver uh, who asks if the teams use the orange ball. 
and then Silas says, yes, they use the orange ball. And it's, it's about this moment of connection they shared that sort of transcends everything else. So that, that was quite nice. I was having a bout of pure insomnia uh, and then slept to Norwich, um, having to change trains in Norfolk about three times and just finding myself alone hallucinating and standing on a rural railway platform somewhere looking out over like hundreds of miles of flat land and this enormous sky <laughs> they're getting to Carrow Road and thinking hang on there's a holiday inn inside the ground is is that really there because it's on the opposite side to uh, rather it's on the same side as the tv cameras so you never see it on the television it's like the <laughs> The strange secret of Carrow Road. I've got a nice memory of going to a Peterborough game in a really dismal, overcast day in Peterborough, uh, watching an appalling match and then coming home and this really unpromising article practically writing itself because I just I find it worryingly easy to write about the mediocrity of Middle England. You know, far too much of my stuff comes back to that in the end. I just can't escape it. When other people write them, I like them. When I when I do them, I find them quite uh, tense because I have to sort of really see who scored the goal and and uh, remember what happens. And I sort of uh, I get quite have to concentrate quite heavily for ninety minutes, which is difficult. But I remember one match of the month. It was the Blackpool Cardiff, the Championship playoff in two thousand and ten, I think. And Andy gave me, I think, on the day of the match, a Saturday, he gave me like eighty quid in cash to go and get into Wembley this is my recollection of it and and I went so I went from the office I picked up the office and uh, money at the office I went to Wembley and started looking for touts and I was really indignant because I couldn't find any there were no touts the place was clean the streets were clean there's nowhere to and I just I was wandering around it's about 20 minutes to go before kickoff I thought I've got to get into this game to cover it I can't pretend I've gone to this match and just do patch it together so I with 15 minutes to go, I was just hanging around quite tearfully around the concourse of Wembley Stadium, the outside. And this two, an old couple said, uh, do you want to buy a ticket? They had one ticket for sale with 15 minutes to go for kickoff. And I said, yeah, right. I said, I said, I said I've got 75 quid. And they went, yeah, okay. But so I was just so relieved to get in. That, that was my favourite. But um, there's been others as well, like the Gala Shields, Gala Ferry Dean Rovers was, was really good. And um, the Plymouth game against Wolves, quite a few years back now, but that was Paul Lintz winding up the Plymouth crowd. And there's some kind of romance going on in the Plymouth end, which wasn't going well between a man and a woman. And he ended up about six terrace steps below her for the second half. But um, I do, I, I never enjoyed them at the time. Next, three more writers on Match of the Month. David Stubbs, Al Needham and then Harry Pearson. I remember going to one, I think it was, I think it was at Orient and somebody asked me what I was doing and what my word count was. And I said, oh, about 16, 1700 words. And you're going to write 1,700 words about this. Because <laughs> nobody else would probably give it more than about 100 words. But um, yeah, it's a, yeah, but, yeah, I've been writing about all kinds of stuff, including this conversation. You know, I love reading other people's match reports. Uh, I mean, Taylor Parks and David Stubbs. I love reading their bits. For me, it's hard because I have to go in the press box and sit with you know actual real life football journalists. And you know this, they're just sat there, just clattering away for two hours on the on the laptops, and you know just working their horses off. Well, I'm just sitting there, just doodling in a pad, you know, looking round for you know thing, looking round for things like you know people opening packets of crisps with their teeth or something like that, you know, colour pieces. 
I mean, doing a doing a match report and watching a match where two teams are playing that you don't give a toss about, it's it's a bit like dogging. You kind of like you're there watching, but you're not feeling what other people are. So they're you know that they're really hard to do. I had a really nice day at Gretna. It was when Gretna were at the the height of their sort of Brooks Marlson days, and they, they it, I was there on the day that they won promotion to the Scottish Premier League, and. Although you know, obviously, subsequently everything would unravel terribly. At that point, it was it was a very nice. The atmosphere there was fantastic because it was just a sort of pure joy. Because Gretna, the first time I'd ever seen Gretna play was in the Northern League, you know, many years before, and so there was still like the, they were still a non-league team, and so the, the the sort of celebration was kind of joyous, you know, lacking. Quite often, when teams are successful, there's a degree of sort of triumphalism and taunting of rivals. But there didn't seem to be any of that. There was just this sort of pure joy. And I remember walking to the station and there was a boy in front of me dressed in a sort of full kilt and, and get-up. And he was sort of very quietly singing Campione, Campione, but in this very kind of you know, border Scots kind of slightly understated, a bit embarrassed kind of way. So that that was particular, I particularly enjoyed that. And then another, okay, another game that I remember particularly was going with Colin McPherson, the photographer, to do a game at Workington. And he got a press bus. I didn't bother getting one. I just paid to go in. Um, and then he came and found me. And he said, oh, we've, we've been invited to go and have uh, tea at half time in the Sh- the Bill Shankly Lounge, which was underneath, is, it, is I presume, underneath the stand at Workington. And it, you went in and it was just exactly like being in my grandmother's front room in 1974, like the decor and everything. And it was presided over by this old man and his wife who, I don't know, I conceived the idea that they actually lived there which I thought was rather marvellous, you know, that they'd they'd lived 50 years under the stand at Workington. You'll have heard mention there of Colin McPherson, one of the wonderful photographers whose work features in When Saturday Comes. Here he is talking about a match of the month assignment from behind the lens. I mean, I always get there really early. I like to be down and around the ground over two hours before it starts. And that includes, well, that doesn't matter whether I'm going to Leicester City or or Nelson, I like to be there really early. Um, at the smaller grounds, you can always get more access. So if you get there early enough, the likelihood is you'll get behind the scenes, you'll get in the changing rooms, you'll meet the manager, some of the players, you'll have that kind of a bit of rapport with them. But even with the bigger games, you know, the bigger stadiums, then you can spend more time outside them. I like to always, always make sure I go round the ground. So I'm covering all the angles, looking at the stadium from different angles, different perspectives. And even if I can get further away from the ground and get sort of a long shot looking over the ground, I mean, I can think of walking up Arthur's seat in Edinburgh and getting this lovely shot of Easter Road Stadium, you know, where Hibs play, down over Leith and into the, the Firth of Forth. And Burnley is another one. There's a kind of hill just outside the ground. So you get up and you get this wonderful perspective. It's a scene setter. And I'm always looking for a kind of scene setter. And from there, you just build up the layers. You get, I, get, I get right stuck in around the crowds, um, to mingle with them, just get these little vignettes, these moments, which will just sum up the moods. You know, if it's a club that's struggling, you kind of find the moods maybe a little bit down or belligerent. And if a club's doing well, it's much more kind of up and enthusiastic. So I'll always try and spend at least an hour and a half outside the ground trying to pick up little key images and then I'll go into the ground and, again, just not spend that much time before the, the game, but, you know, looking at little quirky things, mascots, the warm-up, um, just the interaction between 
different parts of the ground, stuff like that. The ironic thing when you do match the month is that when the game starts, the photography kind of stops for a while because you don't really know what the story of the game is going to be until it unfolds. So I often find that I don't photograph that much. Um, you know, again, I'm looking around, I'm trying to assess what the mood in the ground is, what the interaction between maybe manager and player, what the, who the key players are, what they're doing. So really, the actual football side of it, I don't take so much. And then I'm always looking for a, 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 an image at the end to sum up what I've seen. So, you know, people leaving the ground, whether they're happy, sad, um, stuff like that. Again, interactions between players and managers. So, And then always thinking, ticking off in my mind, what was it that we talked about with the writer beforehand, this player, that issue? So, yeah, it's you're, you're kind of always thinking. I mean, if you're covering a game as just a sports photographer, which I haven't done for many, many years, you're just basically looking at the pitch. I probably spend only about 20% of the time looking at the pitch across the whole day. So it's a completely different way of shooting football. From the very beginning, the letters pages of When Saturday Comes have been another affectionately regarded regular. Cubani Rone and then Archie McGregor. I think like most people, the letters page is a classic and um, is, is, is still one of my favourites. And um, is one of those rare things, a letters page which isn't completely made up. I, I can... I can uh, I can vouch for this, having it, uh, helped to edit the letters page myself briefly, uh, that people do actually send these letters in and, and they really do exist. And these dialogues are not imaginary things bouncing around in, in Andy's head. Uh, they, these are real people. The letters page um, is, is consistently really good good value. Um, it always has been. I remember um, in the early days, there was a... a, a brilliant letter um from a a west brom fan who pointed out that the the christian names of the last nine west bromwich albion managers had been ronnie johnny ronnie ronnie johnny nobby and ronnie (laughs) that was obviously again the the um late 80s but a fantastic piece and then you know even more recently there was um a guy wrote about the Cheka trade trophy, um, a, a statistic. He worked out that in a tie between uh, Rochdale and Manchester City under-21s, uh, the shot numbers of the uh, visiting players that started the fixture totaled 752, with the subsequent in- introductions of substitutes bearing numbers 70, 81 and 69 that increased the total still further to 772 by 90 minutes. Ah. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that same issue has got one who, who a guy who won the lucky program at East Kilbride as well. Um, and the guy who, who won it, a guy called Peter Smith from Glasgow, he had his photo taken on the pitch. He's presented with a voucher for a steak dinner for two a popular local restaurant, only redeemable Monday to Thursday lunchtime. <laughs> Many letters received comment on magazine articles. Here's Al Needham on the terror of being corrected and Harry Pearson on a favourite negative piece of correspondence from some years ago. Every time I write a piece for when Saturday comes, there's always a month where I'm just sitting there just shitting myself that I've got something wrong 
and the anxiety doesn't go until the next issue comes along and I immediately go to the letters page, you know, dreading that someone's going to say, oh, that piece I'll need and wrote, well, he doesn't know anything about anything. And, uh, you know, that's hardly ever happened. So, you know, when, when I've written something and no one pulls me up about anything, I know I've done a good job. I have actually, and funny enough, I said that I've been looking through my archive, and I actually found I mentioned on the on one of the podcasts uh, many many moons ago a complaint about um, an article that I'd written where I made a joke about Chick Brody. Chick Brody was the Brentford goalkeeper, and he went to a dog ran on the field, and he went to try and catch it, and the dog ran into him, and he suffered quite a serious leg injury, which I didn't realise. And I made just a passing reference to this in an article. And I got a very angry letter. And this this is from November 1990. This is so, um, and it says, uh, "Dear WSC, please inform Mr. Harry Pearson to get his facts right before stooping so low as to trivialise a tragic incident which put an end to Chick Brody's professional football career." The dog attack did not happen at Griffin Park, but at Layer Road, Colchester and in my opinion, should not be the subject for poor attempts at humour by someone I presume to be your resident comedian. Please consider an apology to Mr Brody and desist from any such further attempts at humour. And I notice that in the covering letter that's come with it, it says, the fan mail continues unabated. Do with it what you will. Might I suggest burning? (laughs) That's how when Saturday comes, took these things seriously in those days. Over the years, when Saturday comes has been a home for reviews of football culture, whether books, films, or even the dreaded spectre of soccer theatre. A regular feature is the television review page. Here, Cameron Carter takes us through the intricacies of writing that column and describes some of the worst things he's had to watch so that we don't have to. I write notes as I go in a scrappy notebook. I do try to sort of find during the week or during the month, I try to find a beefy, serious documentary somewhere that I can review just to counter my natural shallowness. So I like to sort of have a bit of gravitas in in the the column somewhere, you know, just to uh, leaven it out a bit. But I I do what I do a lot, I've found, and I'm sort of not a bit ashamed of it. So I think of a line some, you know, on the bus that's uh, on the Wednesday, the 4th of the month, and I hang on to it for a whole month until deadline day and just try and crowbar it into the column somehow. So, I mean, I've, I've looked through my notes actually recently and I've, um, on, on one page of uh, like two notebooks ago, I've got a, a line saying, uh, I've written something like, uh, make a joke about Doug Ellis. And I, and I obviously never managed to, Try to buy that in because obviously that's quite a, maybe it's a difficult, too ambitious a task. But uh, that's what I do. And sometimes I'll, I'll write down a joke. Like there was, um, I write down a thought, like uh, coming behind um, Greg the Chef guy on uh, on Celebrity Master Chef, whatever. I, so I wrote down something like coming behind him in a smiling contest, which because he's got one of the most instant her- terrific, uh, horrific smiles that I've ever seen. Uh, his camera smile. But uh, I wrote it down. I thought. And but I did a TV review um, recently, but I just couldn't quite force it in there. There was no way I could get it in there. So I, that one was, I, you know, you'll see it later. It will come up. <laughs> but I do. I carry I carry them around with me. These lines, and uh, I'm determined to use them. I watched a program called Fan Banter on uh, late night television, and they, it was about the time when they were doing these sort of um, isn't football great fun for young people as well? And uh, they, it was just. Um, it was all. It was basically, and banter was spelt with an A. The the banter part of it was spelt with an A, and and it was just 
um, short, not very funny sketches. Um, and I remember one of them, she was doing a Thai, the Thai cup, the Thai challenge cup. And for that sketch, she was pretending to fire the balls to decide who played who out of her vagina. And don't know if I can say vagina on the podcast, but that's what she was she was pretending to do uh, with some kind of really crude special effect. And that's when I turned it off and thought, oh, I'm going to review it and I'm going to review it badly, but I'm not going to watch it. It was horrific. Another one was Mike Bassett, football manager. That was That was just dreadful. Sometimes there's so many reasons to dislike something, you don't know where to start, and that takes up most of the time. Next, Harry Pearson on the process of writing his monthly column. Most of the process of writing is is really not writing. So, you know, most of it, it takes me about... The other thing is that with a column, and I've written, I don't know, with the columns from when Saturday comes, and for The Guardian, probably over a thousand in my life. And the weird thing with it is that whatever amount of words you have to write, there's all the last hundred you can never find. You know, if someone asks you to write six hundred words, five hundred come really easily, and then the, the last hundred are hard. And if they write, if they ask you to write five hundred, the four hundred come easily, and the last hundred are difficult. So, um, I think you know the main thing for me is that I, I go to, to non-league football every week, and so that the main sort of spark for the column and the idea for the column mainly comes from people that I meet at football because I I know. You know, hundreds of people now at non-league games. I don't know their names and I don't know their social circumstances or where they live, but I can always stand and have a chat with them. And often they sort of tell me funny little stories that, that eventually sort of become the column. Um, and I'll say it takes about two days for me to write it, which is far longer than it should. I'm sure if I actually if I actually just stopped going and getting biscuits out of the cupboard and just focused, it would actually get it would actually get done a lot quicker. But as I say, that seems to that seems to be that I always feel that you know a lot. Of, yeah, the, the most important part of writing is actually the not writing, the avoiding of the writing. That seems to be the that seems to be the key to it. So yeah, so that's yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much how it works. I don't really know. I can't really explain it. <laughs> I think I always sort of think the thing when I when I when I talk to people about writing, you got to get the if you get the opening paragraph and the last paragraph, the rest will fill itself in eventually. Striking, funny, and memorable. When Saturday comes, covers are arguably a feature all of their own. Next then, Andy Lyons and Tom Hocking elaborate on the front page and contributors Archie McGregor, Barney Roney and Tim Bradford on some of their favourites. We try to decide on a subject for a cover a couple of days ahead and we get our libelous jokes out of the way first, like a sort of system cleanse, things that we know we can't really say. If we did say, we'd always have to put a big splash in a cover saying final issue of WSC, you know, because we'd said something about a, a particular, um, I don't know, oligarch club owner, for, for example. Um, uh, but we, we try to come up with an idea first and look around or ask uh, our designers to look for suitable photos. And um, we always obviously need an appropriate photo to go with whatever the subject is. Uh, a funny picture in itself always helps with a joke we're aiming for. And it needs to be a subject that will still be relevant in a week or two's time, given the issue be on sale for usually on sale for a month. And we also we do try to vary the topics. So we don't want to cover the major clubs all the time. Unfortunately, they are often the ones that, that sell best. I really like it when we... Um, we get a chance to cover clubs that wouldn't normally be on the cover of magazines. So um, we had a great one uh, with Sutton and Lincoln when they uh, had their cup runs, their FA Cup runs, which is a great chance and sold quite well. Um, we don't know if that's because of the cover or because the cover was different or not. But um, obviously, when you're 
cover is going on a newsstand, while we're not a particularly commercial magazine, there is still a lot of evidence that shows, you know, covering the what what I suppose you would call the big six clubs, um, although that changes occasionally. Um, it does tend to result in slightly higher sales, but you can't always make jokes about six clubs, you know. You've got to try and mix it up. And it's not very WSC if you've only ever covering the, the big six. So it's nice when we get to getting to cover um Sutton and Lincoln was particularly nice because Normally, it's it's a struggle to go below the championship because we, we find sales really drift off after that, which is unfortunate, but it's just, just how it is, really. I think the uh, the one that's always the most poignant is the one they brought out after Hillsborough. Uh, and it, 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 just, it just captured it completely, wasn't it? You know, it had Graham Kelly, um, the South Yorkshire police chief, and Margaret Thatcher all saying it wasn't our fault. And then it was just a picture of a group of supporters in the bottom corner saying, oh, well, it must be our fault again. Just summed up the whole event, really, in the, it, it's, it's, its aftermath, um, sadly. I think I always, I always like the covers they um, bring out before um, major uh, tournaments nice and sort of uh, self-effacing don't get too carried away with you know footballs coming home or 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 kind of flag waving the cover for just before russia 2018 was raheem sterling marcus rashford and and jordan henderson one says there's corruption racism and state controlled media and jordan henderson finishes by saying sounds just like home (laughs) i tend to sort of go with the classics um ryan giggs is he being used to sell magazines? Which was a brilliant cover because obviously it's funny, but the picture used of Brian Giggs to, to to illustrate it was brilliant. It was one of the first times I really noticed what an incredibly sort of intense facial expression he has. He's got this sort of look of incredible wounded integrity about him, as though he's really considering this question. Uh, that, so that that was brilliant, and obviously the, the Graham Kelly Beano one is a is a classic. Um, FA unveils unveils new new blueprint. Um, uh, there have been so many. I always love the covers. Even even a bad WSC cover is a is a good cover. Man United and Arsenal players discussing European monetary. That's how there's there's loads of players. There's lots of speech bubbles going on, and they're you know they're all discussing sort of monetary policy and geopolitics, and it's that beautiful juxtaposition of what they're really saying, <laughs> which you can tell by their face, and uh, this sort of lovely um, cod uh, London School of Economics speak, which it's just you know, and again that's a, that's timeless. That is a, it's a work of art. That one, it's fantastic. Front covers are one artistic element of the magazine, but let's hear more now from Tim Bradford, long-time When Saturday Comes illustrator, on his work. It's changed over the years, so now I I do regular stuff. Like In the past, I would have been suggesting uh, various things. So, so, for instance, when I, when I worked, I actually worked as a staffer at the MAG for about four years, and me and Andy would think of ideas and throw things around, and, and Doug Cheeseman who's the art director and was the art director for many years. And so we'd kind of piece these things together in a kind of collaborative way, which was fantastic. And it's still great when that happens, but I tend now to just do, I illustrate regular features. So a couple of weeks before the issue goes to press, Andy will send me Harry Pearson's article, which I illustrate, and the TV review sometimes a couple of others like the city's thing and then i'll then i'll also send andy 
list of ideas for the graphic and he'll choose one and then we'll work on the rough. So that's still kind of got a bit of a collaborative thing where we'll work on stuff together and it takes a bit more time. And yeah, then, then basically in the last week, I have a, I have a system. I kind of have to get monk-like silence when I'm coming up with ideas, which is quite hard, obviously in lockdown. Then as soon as the ideas come, that's when the mechanical drawing bit takes over. Lots of coffee, lots of loud music. Uh, and it's and you think this is this is great this is, yeah, this, this is a great job it's, it's still you know it's just great fun so uh, you know there's lots of there's lots of other illustrators when Saturday comes over the years and you know I think it, it's actually really good I mean I have these kind of quite small bits but this you know you still put the same amount of um, the same amount of attention to detail and, and love and work and creative process into them no matter what the size they'll end up yeah so that's it I mean I could probably give a day for each illustration in recent times when Saturday comes took the trend booking decision to no longer carry advertisements from gambling companies in the magazine Richard Guy and Tom Hocking explain we thought it was the right thing to do uh, and still do uh, it's been a couple of years since 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 we did it now uh, the gambling is, uh, and it's it's not really it's not necessarily just your, your big name high street gamblers. It's it's your obscure Chinese sites and far eastern sites that you see on Premier League shirts and sleeves and what have you. Um, and it's it's just a really sort of invasive part of the game now. Um, uh, and gambling is proven. To, to have um, quite detrimental effects to a lot of people's lives. So for you know, for everyone that has a flutter on a Saturday, does an accumulator or whatever, there's 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 a person whose whose life is ruined by it. Um, so we, we we felt we wanted to comment on that. Um, we felt we couldn't really comment on it while taking gambling money, and we didn't really want to take gambling money anyway. So, um, but. You know, they were good payers. So, again, our principles um, probably got in the way of a bit of profit. But uh, life goes on. People wrote to us, actually. Not as, 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 Most people congratulated us. Um, a few people told us we were stupid and questioned our commercial acumen. Financial, it's a big financial blow. They're one of the few industries that do still pay for pay decent money for, for advertising in print media. But at the same time, I, I think it's it shows that that's not all we're interested in really well obviously we would like to keep going and it, it has you know not not just that obviously the the declining sales of all across the the marketplace of magazines um but a combination of the declining sales and the lack of gambling advertising did result in his launching patreon and the podcast and and stuff like that which is i'd much rather and i think that that's the feeling among the rest of us too is i'd much rather be funded by people who enjoy the magazine than by gambling companies and if that means we can't you know we have to slightly adjust our budgets and we have to make the paper a bit lighter and a bit cheaper to get by. I think, or I hope, our readers would understand that we'd rather do that and be funded by them than have much more expensive paper and, you know, lots lots of bells and whistles, but be, but that'll be funded by gambling advertising. We went with our hearts, I guess, uh, in, in this scenario. And I think that's what WSC has always done. In, in many ways, not to sound too cliched and over romanticized about it, but I think, you know, you go with your gut instinct and if something doesn't feel right, then we shouldn't do it. We're not beholden to anyone, really. We're, we're an independent magazine. Uh, one of the joys of being an independent magazine is that we don't answer to anyone but ourselves and our readers, really. So um, 
if our readers are happy with our decision and our re- while our readers are still happy to keep us in business, we will stay in business. So <laughs> that's where we are now. And I feel much more comfortable with that. For 400 issues, When Saturday Comes has done its own thing and it continues to matter. Long live when Saturday comes. It still serves a, a, a great purpose and is, is still a great sort of touchstone for um, hopefully not just those of us that grew up in the era when it when it first emerged, but but people that have joined it along the way. It matters uh, a lot. I think it's important. It's I, I can't think of anything that is in any way a parallel to when Saturday comes. It's um, it's serious. It's funny. It's cynical. It's got a nice cynicism about it. It's uh, there's uh, I don't know the noun for sardonic sardony, but it's sardonic, you know. And it's and also it's inclusive and global without being sort of brash about it. It's very low key, really understated. I really like understatement anyway. But it doesn't. It sort of seems to fly under a lot of people's radar. But it is very very global. It's got it's very ambitious magazine, I think, and it. Also, more importantly, I think it acts as a guardian of the game. It looks and observes the game. It just tells it where it's going wrong and where it's just drifting away from what it should mean. And finally, I think it gives fans a good name. You know, down the years, what I love about it, the magazine, is is its consistency. And if you you know you go back and you read things from 15, 20 years ago, and the magazine's point of view about things is is the same as it was then. You know, I mean, calling out the corruption, the racism, the incompetence the greed that exists at so many levels of, of football and still giving a voice to people who need to be listened to in football. Uh, I mean, there's just so much good that flows from When Saturday Comes. I mean, I guess When Saturday Comes matters as much as any magazine can be said to matter. But it has some things that set it apart. For example, the um, openness to new writers as a journalist, that's a really important thing. I will always recommend anyone with any talent or any interest who just wants, has one good idea to contact WSC and say, would you be interested? Because you can actually be published and they don't care who you are or where you're from or what, you know, whether your idea is going to get clicks on a website. Like an interesting thing will be published. And that's a really important platform and a really important thing to be available in in the media. Uh, And obviously the other point is that I've always seen when that becomes an art sure most people do as a voice for, well, it's quite ironic. The magazine started off as something saying, Hey, Football fans aren't all idiots. You know, we're not all hooligans. Some of us are actually into magazines and into good writings and into other things other than sort of going around slashing people with Stanley knives, which was the dominant sort of media narrative at the time. And in that time, in the magazine's existence, football has moved across the sky to the other side of things, where suddenly everyone's a football fan. Everyone's got some sort of, you know, Tim Lovejoy side to them. If you're not talking about the match at the office, you know, what's wrong with you? And WC sort of stayed where it is and it's now become... Hey, not every football fan is like an idiot who wears ripped jeans and goes on about who they're betting on and the fancy football league and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that voice is still in the same place, but it's talking to football, which has moved to another space entirely, which is another interesting thing about why the magazine still has a place, I guess. When Saturday Comes says all football matters and it puts the love of the game in all its manifestations, above getting money from the game. And you can see the contrast in that with a magazine called FC Business, which is aimed at the football business community, which is the absolute antithesis of what you see in in When Saturday Comes. I think the magazine 
is an open forum for activists in, in the football world, for the football authorities who do read it and do comment and get back in touch with the magazine about various articles. It's there for football historians, for authors who submit books for review, for fans. I think the, the letters page is, is particularly interesting and vibrant and esoteric. So it's, it's that open forum, but it also matters because of its stance. It's critical. It's a critical friend. It's humorous. It's independent. And I think it represents a tone that's rather disappeared from broadsheet writing about football nowadays. You know, in the past, you'd get the likes of Jeremy Alexander or David Lacey or Phil Shaw in The Independent and The Guardian writing about that. But I think it's become much more Premier League or international or La Liga focused. So it's the open forum, the start. And I think authority, you know, going for 34 years, being in print gives you authority. It suggests that there are gatekeepers on the quality of what happens within the covers, which is not true of an awful lot of uh, internet-based contributions to, to the debate. So it has that authority, which is ethical, I think, and it's kind of enabling football fans rather than exploiting them. So I think those three things, the openness, the stance and the authority, give it a unique space in the football environment. And uh, it's tremendous, I think, that on not a lot of resource, we're now at the 400th issue. At the moment, when Saturday comes, is 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 what it was when I first read it—a lifeline, a reminder that you know not everyone involved in football is a dickhead. A final word then from the man who, with Andy Lyons, founded when Saturday comes, Mike Tisher. I just want to say thanks to the people who kept it going for all that time. It's been extraordinary that it's lasted. I think you know all print publications in these internet days uh, have really struggled and so many of them have died along the way and it's outlasted so many some good some bad publications and i just think the people who've kept it going all that time and by which i mean not just the people who produce it but also the readers and people who like it and people who who see value in it i think they i would just like to say thanks it's because i'm very proud to have been associated with it and it's nice when people say who i don't know say nice things about it when they meet me um i don't i don't sort of want to big note myself about it but i just think it's yeah actually i want to take less credit for it because i think the people who've who've really run it for the times when i haven't been there really deserve all the credit and and but it's nice that we've been able to connect with so many people for such a long time and hopefully also into the future You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app, or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. OK, I'll leave it up to you, and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine.